0: Thanks for tuning in. Maybe is a small town in Michigan not far from Detroit. A grain elevator towers over its sleepy downtown that stretches two short blocks. It has a population of less than 600, and Chelsea Brooke Brook was born just after New Year's in 1992. The youngest of five, she grew up on the family farm with her older brother and three sisters. She liked to bake and read and enjoyed her dog and cats. She was outgoing and energetic, loved watching movies, and her favorite band was Queen. Throughout high school at Monroe High, she worked as a hostess at Olga's Kitchen and had plans to go to Monroe Community College to pursue a culinary degree. But first, she was looking forward to her sister Cassandra's wedding in January, then her sister Megan's in June. It was an exciting time for the Brooke family. In the fall of 2014, in nearby Frenchtown Township, a small rural community, Mike Williams, or Big Mike as he was known, was getting ready for his annual Halloween party. Mike was a lead singer in a local band, and this year's party was going to be bigger and better than ever and be recorded for a music video. He hired 15 people to handle security and organize parking for his guests. Chelsea loved parties and was a fan of Mike's. She'd attended a couple of his parties before and planned on going again this year. She spent three weeks on her costume as Poison Ivy, a character in the Batman movie. Who kills her victims with a kiss? She sewed leaves onto a green vest and paired it with black leotards, a purple wig, and a jug of wine she would carry around just like her character. She kept her costume a secret from her friends. It looked great on her five foot seven-inch frame. The colorful long wig replaced her blonde hair and hid the anchor tattoo behind her right ear. At 22 years old, Chelsea wasn't interested in driving, never wanted a car, and her parents were happy to drive her to and from work. On the morning of Saturday, October 25th, Chelsea texted her sister Cassandra, Three months till your wedding, can't wait. That night, she packed an overnight bag, grabbed her purse and cell phone, and got a ride to the party with a friend and co worker, Laura Taylor, and they arrived around 11 p.m. Chelsea mingled about and visited with the 20 or so people she knew and ran into her co-worker, Jessica Pribble, and the two hung out for a short time. Daniel Clay, Jessica's ex-boyfriend, whom she shared a child with, approached them. 26-year-old Daniel was tall, good-looking with dark hair and numerous tattoos. Over the last seven years, he'd had many run-ins with the law for convictions in larceny, breaking and entering, and assault and battery, and did numerous short stints in jail. Now out, he was at the party for a good time and was hoping to meet up with someone. Soon after he arrived, Jessica and Daniel went off together. The turnout was much larger than Mike had expected. This year, there was a thousand people. The stage featured a steady stream of music, with eight heavy metal bands rocking the crowd. Adding to the excitement, there was fireball twirling and prizes for the best costumes. Chelsea was hoping to win. She spent the night drinking cheap wine out of her jug, and just after midnight, accidentally bumped into a wooden post and ended up with a gash on her forehead and nose. In a large crowd, Chelsea and Laura got separated. Chelsea was in tears and approached numerous people, asking to borrow their cell phone. And at 12.40 a.m., she called Laura. Fifteen minutes later, Laura was ready to go home, but couldn't find Chelsea. So she gave her bag, purse, and phone to a mutual friend of theirs, Becky Brinson, who tried to get her friend's things to her. But a 40-foot bonfire had just lit up the night sky, and the crowd was growing, and she couldn't get past them to find Chelsea so she decided to go home and took her things with her. She'd get them back to her later. Jessica saw Chelsea sometime around 1.30 a.m. She asked to borrow Gavin Hewlett's phone and said that her friends had left her at the party. Another hour went by and Chelsea borrowed a phone from Alexandria Frunhofer to try and find a ride home. Around 3 a.m., a man selling concert items spotted Chelsea speaking with the man as they walked toward an area of parked cars. They seemed to be having a casual conversation. Chelsea had no luck finding a ride. Carrying her wig in her hand, she set off walking the long, eight miles home. Daniel had left the party and was driving along the road when he spotted her and offered her a ride. Chelsea got in. No one knows for sure exactly what happened because Daniel's story changed many times, but somewhere among his many versions likely lies the truth. What we do know is that Chelsea sustained multiple fractures to her orbital bones around her eyes, her nose, jawbone, and two of her teeth were chit. Her leotard had been ripped open and she had been raped. When Daniel realized Chelsea was dead, he panicked. He drove around for 30 to 45 minutes, thinking about what to do. He drove 10 miles and stopped near some train tracks. He lifted her body out of the car and carried her into the woods. When he couldn't physically carry her any further, he dropped her body onto the cold, hard earth and threw branches over her. After a short rest, he decided he needed to move her further into the woods. Again, he buried her under tree branches and left her there alone. NBC News reported that when Chelsea didn't return home, her sister Cassandra thought she was probably at a friend's house. Then her family started calling her friends. But it was when Becky returned her belongings that they realized she didn't have her cell phone or wallet and knew something was wrong. Her parents, Leandra and Matthew, reported her missing. In the days after her disappearance, her social media account stayed quiet and her bank accounts weren't touched. Within a week, police followed up on almost 300 tips and interviewed 138 people. It wasn't an easy job, Many who attended the party were drunk or high, and their memories impaired. With a lot of people in costumes, it would be impossible to know their true identities. Video from the party was reviewed, and Chelsea was spotted several times, with the last time being at 3.16am. A A sketch was released based on the eyewitness who was sober, and recalled the man as white with a medium build, wearing a dark hoodie, dark hair with a mustache and facial hair, and wore black-framed glasses. On Tuesday, 100 people attended a candlelight vigil for Chelsea. Daniel stayed quiet. Chelsea's friends were nervous. It was a small town. They all knew each other and all went to the same parties. How could Chelsea have disappeared? And who was responsible? Was it someone they knew, or had a stranger come to town? They knew Chelsea wouldn't have willingly gone with a stranger. Authorities organized ground searches on foot and all-terrain vehicles and used a helicopter for air searches. Chelsea's family set up a GoFundMe account to raise funds for the search effort and printed up thousands of flyers. Weeks went by with no sign of Chelsea, Purple was her favorite color, and as Christmas neared, purple ribbons were added to the town's holiday decorations. By January, a $30,000 reward was being offered. Her family, friends, and supporters had distributed 300,000 flyers. Florists and courier drivers were distributing them with their deliveries, and money donated was used to mail out flyers across the states. Chelsea's face was plastered on t shirts, buttons, and signs in windows. Purple ribbons blew in the wind, hanging from the trees, light poles, and mailboxes. Detectives thought they had a solid tip when 29 year old Carrie Carr revealed that her ex boyfriend killed Chelsea and dumped her body in a cemetery. Then 19 year old Harlan Bird alleged that he saw two men drive off with Chelsea. Both were determined to be untrue, and both were charged with lying to detectives. Cassandra's wedding took place. A special prayer was said for Chelsea. Her mother told the Detroit News that her daughter's laundry had sat folded in a basket for months, and she had finally just put it away. She said that she would never stop looking for her little girl, even if it takes ten years and that she doesn't belong anywhere else but with her family. In March, 500,000 flyers had now been distributed. Winter had started to wind down and the snow began to thaw. Law enforcement took advantage of the weather and searched the Lake Erie shore five miles from the Halloween party. Their search for evidence came up empty. Then on March 22nd, Cheryl Ratzlaff found a woman's shoe in a clearing on her wooded property. She spotted it sitting near a ditch with some trash. Cheryl's yard was just over two miles from the party. Chelsea's mother identified the shoe as belonging to her daughter. A week later and ten miles from the party, Eric found a leotard and wig in an abandoned building by the railroad tracks in Flat Rock, Michigan. He had seen Chelsea's missing flyer and contacted police. A brown stain was apparent on the leotard and it was sent to the Michigan State Police Crime Lab for forensic testing. A command center had been set up downtown in a former bank building. His counter was lined with greeting cards and messages of support from the community, friends, co-workers, schoolmates, and churches. Chelsea's mother trudged on. By mid-April, they had distributed over a million flyers. When asked how she kept going, she gave the Detroit Free Press three names, Amanda Berry, Gina DeJesus, and Michelle Knight the three women who were kidnapped and spent ten years in captivity before escaping. And she said, So until somebody tells me otherwise, my daughter is still out there, waiting for someone to help her. And she said that more flyers would be sent out and a fundraiser was planned for May. But it didn't take place. Shortly after, on April 24th, 2015, Seven miles from the party, John Markin in Ash Township was using heavy equipment to level the ground where he was building a house on his 13 acres of undeveloped land when he found skeletal remains hidden under a heavy log and tree branches. An anthropologist was brought in and the remains were identified as Chelsea's using dental records. The medical examiner determined that her death had been a homicide and that she had died from blunt force trauma to her head with a blunt object. Detectives felt that she had been murdered not far from where her body had been found and that her killer likely knew the area. Her brother Nathaniel thanked the public for their efforts and said that while this may be the end of the search, it is also a new beginning the beginning of the search for justice for his sister. CBC News reported that by October, investigators had combed through 900 tips, interviewed 800 people, carried out 34 search warrants, and issued 14 subpoenas, but had no suspects. Meanwhile, the following May 2016, A woman was walking behind the bank on South Monroe Street when two men attacked her and tried grabbing her backpack. She had $700 of tattoo equipment in the pack and wasn't about to let go. They swung her around and she struggled to hang on to it. When she let go, one of the men grabbed it and ran. She reported the theft to police and they tracked down the thieves and took them into custody. One of them was Daniel Clay. Now what Daniel probably wasn't aware of is that the year before, a law had been changed. Previously, DNA was only collected after someone was convicted, but the new law allowed police to collect DNA when someone was arrested. Monroe police collected Daniel's DNA and submitted it to the Michigan State Police Crime Lab for it to be added to the national database. Two months later, the DNA results came in. They had a match. Daniel was linked to the DNA found on the brown stain on Chelsea's leotards. That same day, Jessica was at work at the restaurant when Daniel left her two voicemails saying that he was extremely sorry and had messed up big time, and he was going to be gone for a really long time. Authorities put a surveillance team on Daniel's mobile home, and when he returned, he was taken into custody. It was July 21st, 19 months since Chelsea's murder. Detectives interviewed Daniel, and he admitted to being at the same Halloween party as Chelsea, but denied having seen her or talked to her. But during numerous discussions his story changed, and he provided details that only the killer would know. He conceded that they had consensual sex and that she had asked him to choke her, and he did, for about 20 to 30 seconds, but he went too far and she stopped breathing. He tried to resuscitate her, but when he realized she was dead, he didn't call 911. Instead, he took steps to hide her body. 27 year old Daniel was charged with murder and later was also charged with concealment of her body. The Detroit Free Press reported that the day after his arrest, his girlfriend Kelly Richter told them that he called her and confessed that he'd killed Chelsea. In May 2017, the jury deliberated for only three hours before finding Daniel guilty of first-degree murder and concealment. At his sentencing, Chelsea's mother wore purple. In the courtroom, three large easels stood with over a hundred photos of Chelsea throughout her life. Daniel wore a black and white jail uniform with black framed glasses. As the judge told him, It is very clear to me, Mr. Clay, you are a liar, a rapist, and a killer. Daniel never admitted his guilt in court. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. He appealed his conviction, but it was denied. On a side note, just before Daniel was arrested for Chelsea's murder, he committed sexual assault and was charged. His trial was held after he was convicted of Chelsea's murder and he received an additional sentence of 39 to 60 years. The Detroit News reported that afterwards, Chelsea's mother, Leandra, told the media, A very important lesson from the loss of Chelsea is don't leave your friends alone. If you go somewhere, anywhere as a group, please leave as that same group. Don't assume that they're going to be okay. We still expect her to walk in the back door. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Larry McNabney. He and Laren were two restless souls. The lawyer and the criminal who found each other got married. But over time, she grew tired of Larry, but not his money. She poisoned him, stuffed his body in a fridge, and fled to Florida. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murder20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder and Twenty at Patreon, PayPal or merlin 20com We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and Fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.